Jeffer with the Planet Agora podcast. I've made some previous podcasts under different brand names such as Cultoid, but I'm sort of rebranding all my content now under Planet Agora. So tonight I'm going to be talking about reviews and ratings and reading and also just riffing on this uh, essay I wrote called The Problem with a Five-Star World. Uh, the link, I'll leave a link to the Medium article if you want to check that out. But the topic is how ratings and reviews are changing the way we live, work, shop, and feel about each other. Okay. The popular UK TV series Black Mirror satirizes the world's obsession with ratings and reviews in the episode entitled Nosedive, in which people rate each other after every interaction. People whose ratings drop below a certain level become a low caste of untouchables who can't function in society. This is actually only a slight exaggeration of the present reality. Yeah, we're seeing this more and more, especially like in China with social credit ratings. And there are proposals to do this in different countries, including the United States and various European countries. Okay, consider how many websites, services, and products are widely reviewed today. Not only that, but how many times per day are you now asked, nay, pressured and cajoled to leave a review for someone? Here are just a few of the sites, services, and uh, companies where reviews are expected. Amazon, Netflix, Uber, Airbnb, eBay, Yelp, Rotten Tomatoes. These, of course, are just the tip of the iceberg. Amazon and eBay were certainly instrumental in getting people into the habit of leaving ratings and reviews, but now it's gone way beyond that, of course. Ratings are not just for products, but also for the sellers of the products. Sites such as eBay may break it down into specific questions such as how promptly the item was shipped, was the item as described, and how was the interaction, if any, with the seller. Many sites do this now, like uh, Fiverr and various gig sites, Airbnb. More recently, Yelp and similar sites have gotten us into the habit of leaving reviews for restaurants and stores. Angie's List added service providers such as contractors, doctors, salons, etc. to the mix. Ratings play a huge role in the growing gig economy. This includes Uber and Lyft drivers, Airbnb, and the millions of gigs advertised on sites such as Fiverr, Upwork, and many others. Before you hire someone, buy their product, or stay at their place, you want to know their rating. It's also commonplace for websites to demand a rating after the most trivial interaction. I've started to see pop-ups asking me, how would you rate your experience on this website, sometimes just like three seconds after I got to the site. Uh, the same is true for any type of customer service interaction. Companies are obsessively tracking how their customer service reps are doing. Part of my motive for writing this article is to show how misleading ratings and reviews can be. Reviews, reviews are by nature subjective. Some people are angry and critical by nature and get a perverse thrill at leaving negative reviews. Others, by contrast, are very polite and don't like to criticize, even, even if it's justified. Both types tend to distort reality and make reviews less than a perfect guide to use when considering people, products, and services. There's also the philosophical question of what it means to live in a world where everything is quantified. Providing trust in an uncertain world. Ratings and reviews are an important part of what has been termed the trust economy. 
increasingly we interact with individuals and businesses that we don't know and may never meet in person. For services such as Uber and Airbnb, we may eventually meet the owner or service provider, but we want some reassurance beforehand. As Rachel Botsman discusses in her book, Who Can You Trust?, so many aspects of the modern economy are grounded in questions of trust. We no longer live in villages or even cities where transactions are primarily straightforward and in person. We increasingly inhabit huge digital and anonymous universes, sometimes now we're calling it the metaverse, where reviews often provide a bridge from the unknown to the trustworthy. The question is, how much can we trust reviews? Ratings versus reviews. The distinction between ratings and reviews is fairly obvious, but I'd still like to take a few seconds to spill it out. Ratings are quantified, usually with stars. Almost all rating systems nowadays use a five-star system, although some, such as the movie site Rotten Tomatoes, use ten stars. Reviews, on the other hand, are more subjective still. A review is actual text someone writes out, usually along with a rating. In some cases, the review qualifies the rating, or like explains it in more detail, hopefully. It's common, for example, for someone to rate a product, business, or film four stars, and then in the review, along with whatever other comments, say they'd actually give it 3.5 or 4.5 stars if that option was available. Half stars are seldom used today. They were more common in the pre-internet era. I recall, for example, newspapers such as the New York Daily News giving movies like 2.5 out of 4 stars. At least reviews, at least in theory, require a little more nuance than a, just a number. However, many reviewers are lazy and leave unenlightening comments such as great movie or waste of time. Five stars or you suck. The title of this essay is inspired by a widespread phenomenon one that I think is one of the most important aspects of our rating review obsessed world. The obsession with getting a perfect rating, which usually means five stars. I often employ freelancers on the popular website Fiverr.com where you can find someone to do almost anything digital, create graphics, build a website, write an article, create a logo, help you solve a technical problem, etc. Gigs start at $5 plus Fiverr's add-on fees for processing or whatever excuse they use to raise the price. But in practice, most people charge a lot more. The $5 is just the basic get-you-in-the-door charge. Extras can easily bring most gigs up to $20, $50, or quite a bit more. Some might be hundreds or even over $1,000. After you purchase a gig, Fiverr encourages you to leave a review for the provider, similar to a seller on eBay or Amazon. Often sellers themselves often send you a message along with the gig delivery. Many are not shy about outright demanding or asking for five stars. They explain that their livelihood and reputation depend on maintaining their five star rating. In most cases, I give the requested five stars so long as the gig was completed with reasonable competence. Do most of these gigs really merit five stars? That's a harder question to answer. Honestly, probably not. But the point here is that we've come to the point where merely providing adequate service entitles the seller to a five-star rating, or at least that's the perception. In truth, it would mean in most cases to give them less unless they really screwed up in some way, like not delivering what they promised, being very late, poor quality, etc. 
you'd be actually sort of uh, harming their reputation. However, if we're brutally honest about it, shouldn't five stars meet imply exceptional service? Not anymore, not in the five-star world. Airbnb is another popular site where anything below five stars is considered substandard. If you even try to leave, say, four stars for a certain category of service, yeah, Airbnb divides up the ratings into, like, different categories such as cleanliness, location, uh, communication, and maybe a few others. The system auto-generates a question such as, did the owner mislead you about, say, the location? In other words, they try to make you feel guilty for giving a less-than-perfect rating. The same mentality exists on the house pet-sitting site TrustedHouseSitters.com. This is a little bit lesser-known of a site that connects homeowners who are trying to find a house sitter when they go on vacation or travel for any reason. I've used this many times as a house sitter, not as a owner. And house sitters take on the responsibility such as caring for pets or just watching the house. This is another example of the gig sharing economy and like all such services, ratings and reviews play a large role. I recall discussions from a Facebook group dedicated to house sitting. On more than one occasion, there were posts from house sitters who were distraught at only getting four stars for certain sits. One person asked something to the effect of, is my reputation ruined now? Again, this is like for four stars, which uh, traditionally would have been pretty good. In a five-star world, only perfection is acceptable. What we are really talking about, though, is the pretense of perfection, where flaws are swept under the rug out of consideration. Factors that motivate reviewers. Ratings and reviews are far from purely fact-based objective reactions to people, products, and businesses. Many factors go into these reactions, whether the reviewer is a professional or an amateur. A professional reviewer isn't necessarily better or smarter, this merely refers to someone who gets paid to write reviews. In some cases, uh, the reviewer is reviewing an opinion or an ideology rather than the actual content. I'm talking more now about books and movies. This is especially true of, of books and like nonfiction books and documentaries where the creator has a certain ideological position. Many reviewers of works dealing with politics, religion, or controversial figures are reviewing the idea or position rather than the work itself. And then there's politeness and consideration. This is a major factor when it comes to reviews of personal services. Despite the internet's reputation as a wild west full of trolls, most people are fairly polite by nature and don't like to criticize others, at least publicly. When you've had any kind of personal interaction with someone, even via email, this tendency is magnified. So unless someone has blatantly ripped you off or otherwise disappointed you, if you're like many people, you're likely to just go ahead and give them the five stars, even if you inwardly feel three or four would be more appropriate. Class awareness may even play a small part, like as an affluent person may feel guilty about giving a low rating to someone who makes their living as a driver or gig worker. Trolls and fake reviews. Many online reviews, both positive and negative, are simply fake. In other words, they aren't written by actual customers, but by people with an agenda, or in some cases software like bots. Fake positive reviews may be written by the product owner or author under an alias, their friend's family, or by a paid service that offers reviews. 
similar to fake social media likes and followers, which you can also buy. Fake negative reviews are often posted by competitors. While it's impossible to know exactly what percentage of reviews are fake, the number is quite high. One study based on AI analysis estimated that over 30% of customer reviews are fake. That's quite a bit. Then there are real reviews that are motivated by malice. Well, as I just noticed, most people are polite, others not so much. The internet does have its share of trolls, miscreants, mischievous teens, and much older people who should theoretically have better things to do, and people who just have bad attitudes. Such people let off steam by posting bad reviews and giving products one star. Do polite reviewers and trolls just cancel each other out? To some extent, but they both tend to confuse and distort reality. Reviewers as unpaid marketers. For sites that sell products or services, reviewers play an important role in, in selling. When we write reviews, we are essentially unpaid marketers who help to push popular products. In exchange for the ego boost and the chance to be part of an online community, we provide valuable data and social proof to other customers. Consider Amazon, for example. Since Amazon sells products, either directly or indirectly, via third-party sellers and affiliates, they obviously want their customers to have a positive experience when they shop. Positive reviews are more effective than ads for selling products. The same is true for Airbnb, Fiverr, and countless other sites. Why do you think these sites pressure customers not only to leave reviews, but to keep them positive? Five stars or nothing. Why Netflix and others have stopped publishing reviews. Now let's look at sites that have simply discontinued posting ratings and reviews. Netflix is a good example. Occasionally, I get a message from Netflix asking for my opinion on something I watched. They don't ask me to give stars, however, but a thumbs up or thumbs down. They used to ask for stars, but that was quite a while ago. For anyone old enough to remember the original Siskel and Ebert movie review program, both of these opinionated and sadly late reviewers gave movies stars. If I recall, it was a four-star scale. Apparently, that was too nuanced for viewers, so it was replaced with a simplistic thumbs-up versus thumbs-down. To me, this is really an insult to anyone who wants any kind of in-depth analysis of a movie. Apparently, Netflix is going the same route without even giving us any kind of public display of viewers' opinions anymore. The reason isn't hard to understand. Netflix thrives on providing relatively low-cost content to millions of people. While opinions vary on specific shows and movies, it will be hard to argue that most of their content is outstanding. In fairness, it would probably be impossible to fill up any streaming service, cable channel, or entertainment hub with only top-quality material. There's just not enough of it to fill up the hours. During the years Netflix did display ratings for shows and movies, I would say the average rating fell somewhere between two and three stars. I don't have data on this, so I'm just relying on recollection. Along with stars, there were also reviews, many of them very critical and acerbic. This wasn't exactly raising the company's reputation. Most likely, this is why you can no longer see ratings or reviews on Netflix. A similar course of events occurred on Hulu. No more reviews or comments on there either. Most publications or websites that publish reviews have a vested interest in reviews that are skewed in a positive direction. 
The exceptions are site li sites like Yelp, which don't sell any products but only publish reviews. Rotten Tomatoes is another example, and one of the few sites where you can still see customer reviews of TV shows and movies. Rotten Tomatoes doesn't produce its own content. Reviews are its product, so it has no reason to care one way or the other how people rate things. On the other things, on the other hand, companies such as Netflix, Fiverr, Airbnb, and Uber care very much about how customers review their services. If enough people aren't satisfied, these companies won't be around very long, and all streaming services fall into this category. With Netflix, you're paying for a subscription, so there's no reason not to sample dozens or even hundreds of items per month. Unless you're actually busy with other trivialities like a job or family, chances are not everything will please you. If you're the type who's ready to pan a movie you watched for only 15 minutes, you're part of the force bringing down the average review score. All these factors help to place Netflix in the uncomfortable position of offering lots of content that was getting bad reviews. So Netflix scrapped the whole system, removing any kind of feedback from the site. This may have implications for the future of reviews and how or if they're displayed in general. A new type of policy may be emerging. If most of your products are only getting two or three stars, you may as well just stop publishing reviews, period. Twilight of the Professional Critic. In the pre-internet days, the professional critic, someone who reviewed films, books, or restaurants, was a sometimes exalted and sometimes despised figure, but one who wielded frightening power. Their reviews appeared in newspapers and magazines, and their opinions could make or break careers and businesses. While it's easy to make fun of such people as elitist snobs whose highbrow standards are far removed from the tastes of the masses, their influence was undeniable. Popular films and books could sometimes escape the consequences of reviewers' acid tongues and pens. Fans of genres such as horror, romance, fantasy, and action-adventure aren't always so easily dissuaded from a movie they want to see. Theater critics, on the other hand, were practically gods in their ability to make or break a show. Similarly, restaurant critics could terrify restaurant owners with their ability to send droves of diners to their establishments or keep them away. Today, what really counts for restaurants isn't the solitary food critic, but the masses of Yelp, Google, and other amateur reviewers whose aggregate opinions now hold the same weight as the professional critics of yesteryear. Professional critics or reviewers were powerful because their reviews were featured in print media. On the internet, they must compete with the ubiquitous amateurs. You can see how this works by looking at books by well-known authors on Amazon, which start off with a few mainstream professional reviews, like, say, publications such as the New York Times Book Review, followed by many more, usually, customer reviews. Are amateur reviewers the new elite? Customers seem to be the new elite when it comes to making or breaking books, businesses, movies, and all types of products. One big difference is that customer reviews are usually far more numerous than professional ones ever were. Another difference, one that's more subjective and often controversial, is that amateurs, by definition, aren't usually experts. So from one point of view, their opinions don't hold the same weight, or shouldn't, or should they? 
Here we smack right into one of the central conflicts of the digital age, elitism versus democracy. We see this in the war between established versus self-published authors, uh, mainstream recording artists versus indies, and in many other areas. When it comes to reviews, you can look at this in two ways. The elitist point of view is that professional critics are well-educated and acknowledged experts on the topics they cover, whether it's fiction, film, food, or electronics, or anything else. The amateur, by contrast, is inclined to shamelessly say some version of, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. Of course, it's not quite that simple. Many amateurs know quite a bit about their topics, even if they don't always hold advanced degrees or work for esteemed publications. Consider top Amazon reviewers not only for books, but in any category. Someone who's reviewed hundreds or thousands of items often has a lot of relevant experience. That said, many amateur reviews are, well, amateurish, and sometimes irrelevant, vague, and trollish. They also tend to display blatant biases in certain directions. As any postmodernist can tell you, there's no such thing as objectivity, certainly not when it comes to reviews. However, professional critics do generally justify their opinions with some solid arguments, not always so with amateurs. If you read enough reviews, you'll start to recognize some tedious patterns. It's amazing how predictable and repetitive they can be. For example, many will start their review with the words, I hardly ever bothered to write reviews, but as if this makes their review relevant in some way. They'll also repeat the same worn out criticisms apparently not realizing how many others have said exactly the same thing, such as, if I could give this zero stars, I would, or another variation is, if I could give it negative stars, I would. Another one is, there's two hours of my life I'll never get back. These are rather harmless, if tiresome, cliches, but they do point to the rather insular world in which these reviewers live. There are pros and cons to the trend of amateur reviewers displacing professionals. One downside of amateur reviews is that many items may be reviewed by people who are the completely wrong audience. When the wrong audience writes reviews. One downside to the proliferation of amateur reviews is that people review products that they were never intended for them. For example, in the realm of popular entertainment, there's a frequent bias towards wholesome, family-friendly content. Many negative reviews will complain of excessive cursing, violence, or sex. While people are certainly entitled to these preferences, such reviews are not very helpful because they aren't really focused on the quality of the content, but on the type of material it is. In most cases, the reviewer could have saved him or herself the pain of watching this unwholesome material by doing just a little bit of research. For example, I was browsing reviews for a movie I saw called Rumor Has It, a quasi-sequel to The Graduate. Now, rumor has it was by no means a great film. I'd probably give it three stars. However, several reviews expressed shock and outrage at the relationships portrayed in the film, such as partners from different generations. Now, don't people realize that this was a central theme of the original film, The Graduate? Like, one reviewer helpfully pointed out that both this and The Graduate are trash, so why did he watch this one knowing it was a sequel? Did he really expect a 21st century, century sequel to a 60s film to be less objectionable? This points to one of the problems of amateur reviewers. They have a wide variety of biases and agendas 
that may or may not be relevant to different audiences. People whose main criterion is that a film is family-friendly will write very different reviews from those who love films overflowing with blood gore and or gratuitous sex. Now, elitist art house reviewers will have different opposing standards. They may slam a G-rated movie. Do they even still exist? But th for the very reasons that other fans embrace it, they may similarly mock a novel by Nicholas Sparks, a popular novelist who writes very clean, inspiring, and religious content. If you aren't part of the intended audience, your opinion isn't very helpful or relevant. It's the equivalent of a vegan writing a negative review for a steakhouse. Naturally, criticism is by nature a subjective realm. However, in the digital era, reviewing has become so democratized that literally any standards are acceptable. In other words, many people are reviewing material that really isn't meant for them. Authors reviewing authors. When talking about amateur versus professional critics, it's interesting to note another category of reviewer, one peculiar to books. Now that most book sales are online, customer reviews on Amazon, Goodreads, and other sites are critical for authors and publishers. Even more than movies, perhaps, the power has largely shifted from professional to amateur reviewers. However, another odd category of book reviewer has emerged, the author who reviews other books. If you look at book reviews today, either on Kindle or for those of us who still look at print reviews in a bookstore or a library, one thing you'll notice is that many of the reviews are from other authors. Getting famous authors to review the work of a new or lesser known author is nothing new. Some authors seem to recommend new books every week. Stephen King comes to mind. But today, unknown writers reviewing other unknown writers has become a common practice. This is ubiquitous in the realm of self-publishing, especially in genres such as fantasy, romance, and mystery. However, it's also getting fairly common in books sold through traditional publishers. Such reviews always include, after the reviewer's name, their latest book. The self-serving nature of such recommendations is also too obvious. Since the reviewer has a vested interest in promoting their own book, it makes the review look more like uh, an incentivized promotion than an authentic review. The future of ratings and reviews. Will ratings and reviews become even more dominant factors in society in the future? Will the whole world turn into a Black Mirror episode? This is further along in China with its social credit ratings, but it's happening everywhere. In that case, it's not only books, movies, and restaurants that will get starred, our very cells will be rated. Our every interaction, online or offline, may impact our ability to find a job, travel, get a loan, find a date, or even renew our driver's license or passport. Uh, could there be a backlash against this rating-centric culture? In theory, many people have serious reservations about ratings. In practice, however, ratings seem to serve a useful purpose. Perhaps more to the point, people like to rate things on each other. We may not always like to be rated, but we love to rate. It's a way to express ourselves and to feel powerful. For institutions such as financial institutions and governments, it provides not just the feeling of power, but actual power. The most dystopian conclusion is a world where people's access to basic resources is tied to subjectively created ratings, such as if you uh, 
make an objectionable social media post, you lose scores, so it could influence our, make us afraid to say or think anything. <laughs> There's no simple solution to this challenge. Ratings and reviews are, serve plenty of useful functions, and they aren't going to disappear. They should, however, be put into their proper place and not allowed to run our lives and society. This means we need to keep several points in mind. None of these points are earth-shattering, but they can be easily forgotten in a world obsessed with ratings and reviews. 1. We don't live in a five-star world. Few things or people are perfect. Three and four stars are often good enough, and the reality is we usually have to settle for this. 2. Ratings and reviews are always subjective. They are influenced by trends, biases, and other reviews. If you think about that, when you read a bunch of reviews that often influences any review you'll write or rating. 3. Ratings can be gamed. We'll never do away with fake reviews such as positive reviews posted by shills and negative ones by trolls and competitors and bots. So you can't trust reviews. <laughs> 4. Not everything can or should be quantified. A person is more than the sum of their parts. This is what makes social credit systems so misguided and insidious. Alright, that's about it for this topic. I'm thinking of turning this into a longer piece, like uh, maybe even a book or documentary, if there's any interest, or if I'm sufficiently motivated. So, uh, I'm hoping to do more podcasts in the future, and maybe some interviews, more reviews and just rants and opinions. And once again, you can find this essay on Medium with some links to the sources and some of the quotes that should be included in the on the dashboard. So thanks for listening, and uh, tune in again for the next Planet Agora podcast. Good night.